So I hope that answers your question. That was kind of long. It did. It did. It, you know, it's very exciting because, you know, I, I was a researcher myself in the good old days. Uh, I've received a, 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 an MAF grant and I was very, very proud of doing so. But um, I, I also think it is so difficult from, for, for veneer researchers sometimes to tap into research money. And Mark Morris has done such an amazing job in supporting the profession. Sorry for saying Sorry Media presents the Purr Podcast. The best podcast for feline medicine and surgery with tips, tricks, and updates for the entire veterinary healthcare team. If you're dying to know more about cats, keep on listening. Here are your hosts, Dr. Susan Little, famous cat vet and textbook author, and Dr. Yola Kirpenstein, talented surgeon and social media geek. Hello, this is Dr. Yola Kirpenstein and... So you you did it again. So you have developed a new trick where you slide so fast into the intro that I have no chance. I, I gave you the chance because I say and, and then you're well, supposed to answer. And, and can you introduce yourself for our lovely audience instead of immediately <laughs> starting uh, talking about what I should do? <laughs> yes, but what would our podcast be if if I didn't gripe about the intro every time? Like it's, yeah, it's that's true. That's yeah, true. So, so after three hundred episodes, we're still at the yes. same topic. We still can't get intros down after all of these episodes. Yes. So I'm Dr. Susan Little, the person who still can't get the intros right. And this is the per podcast, Dr. Yes. Susan Little. Yes. And we're very excited. So uh, we had some, uh, I don't know what number it is now. I'm, I'm, I've, I've lost complete count here, but I do know that we have a great guest and uh, this time. So uh, would you like to introduce her? Um, yes, and, and, and actually I'll let her give a bit of her own introduction, but we do have Dr. Kelly Deal with us today. Uh, and Kelly is with the Morris Animal Foundation. So we're very excited to hear what they have in the works. So maybe Kelly, we'll just let you um, tell our audience a little bit about yourself. Sure, so thanks for having me on. And I am obviously a veterinarian. I have been, um, I hate to say how long a veterinarian now, but more than, 30, more than 30 years. And I graduated from the University of Tennessee, um, like I said, many years ago. And then after a small stint in general practice, where I also did emergency, I kind of got back into the academic situation and eventually did a residency at Colorado State University, which is how I got to Denver as a East Coast girl. So if my New Jersey accent slips through, you'll you'll understand why. And like so many people, I loved Colorado. So after my residency, I actually spent three years in a um, at National Jewish Health, which is indeed a human hospital, doing basic research, decided, I don't think I want to do that. And went ahead um, back into private practice where I was in a very large um, specialty hospital here in Denver for about 14, 15 years. And then I left practice about 10 years ago and I went ahead and joined Morris Animal Foundation after getting a little bit of extra training, as it were, in health communication, medical com communication, and technical communication. So just kind of beefing up those writing skills, which I think a lot of veterinarians have, but honing those skills. And 
I am now the uh, Senior Director of Science and Communication at Morris Animal Foundation, but I'm kind of a little bit of a jack of all trades there. So I do a lot of the writing to both our donors, our veterinary population, sometimes our researchers, obviously, because we fund grants and um, a little bit of everything. That's awesome, Kelly. And 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 so uh, obviously you're here because of the Morris Animal Foundation. Can you tell us a little bit how this started? What uh, and and uh, and what 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 the goals are of this foundation? Yeah, for sure. Um, we were started. We're going on our seventy third year, and we were founded by Dr. Mark Morris Senior, who was a really interesting guy, a veterinarian one of the first people in the 1920s to have a veterinary practice that was really dedicated to small animal. Because I think we all know that at that time, people were, I mean, before then, large animal was really where most veterinarians worked and, and small animals were working animals or just not, um, as they made that transition to being pets, there was a greater demand for people who, you know, really focused on small animal medicine. He was one of the first of those guys. And then after several years in practice where he developed the first prescription diet in his kitchen, which his wife made <laughs> for a long time, the demand got so great, he uh, partnered with Hills. And I think a lot of people probably recognize the name Hills um, with science diet and the prescription diets because he just needed a packing company to help him can and produce his diet. And of course that mushroomed from there. Dr. Morris very, very wisely took a half a cent from each can of KD sold and set it aside to create our endowment. And in 1948, he started Morris Animal Foundation because one of the things that he recognized was that there was a real need for animal health research that was really focused on the specific problems of animals, right? I think, unfortunately, we all know that research was done on animals, but it wasn't for animals. And so in 1948, he started with the first cat and dog studies and made and, you know, started the foundation. And then in 1960, we added horses as one of our funding buckets. And in 1967, wildlife as well. Um, so we have a pretty broad range. We also do llamas and alpacas uh, um, as part of our funding um, as well. So it's been a real uh, interesting ride for us. And um, his son, Dr. Mark Moore Sr., took uh, you know the the foundation even further. So it's been a really, really, really interesting time for us. We've gone through, you know, grown a lot from that first, I think the first grant was $1,000. <laughs> and we now give several million dollars away each year in grant money. So it's been a, it's a really, uh, you know, dedicated to funding animal health research. And we were one of the first folks in that space. Wow, that's, it's really cool. You know, I knew parts of that story um, and probably forgot um, other parts of that story. So obviously more than one generation of the Morris family was involved, right? At least a father and son, mm -hmm. right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. 
And um, we still have uh, Betty Morris, who is Mark Morris uh, Jr.'s wife, is still on our board. And Betty's really interesting. She's uh, a really unique lady because she actually has a PhD in nutrition. And she got it at a time when a lot of women, right, were not going back to school. And that's how she met Mark Morris Jr. actually in school. And so it's really a, a great, again, a really interesting organization. We still have family members that are part of it, though our board of trustees is really quite big and has a really broad swath of different folks with different expertises on, on it. And just as another aside, I think a lot of people don't know, but for the veterinarians, Dr. Mark Moore Sr. actually was the created AHA. So the American Association of, uh, you know, our Animal Hospital Association. And he was also at one time president of the AVMA. So a really, really um, big figure in the early days of our profession. Yeah, that's great. That's great. Yeah, and obviously, uh, Dr. Morris uh, has played a huge role for us too, uh, because I work for Hill. So it's it's great to hear uh, what an amazing person he has been, uh, and 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 you know, in in memory still is because his his work still goes on through you all, which is fantastic, and I'm really happy that um, that Betty is doing well. Um, so uh, that's great to hear. So the the, the Morris Animal Foundation, and, and obviously we are a podcast about cats, so we love to talk about cats. Can you talk a little bit what the Morris Animal Foundation does for cat research? Yeah, absolutely. We have a couple different different things that we've done over the years. Um, our basis is that every year we have a call, right, for feline-focused studies, and Cats, uh, I'm happy to say, get their own pot of money and it's equal to everybody else's. You know, they don't get shortchanged with us. And so we get uh, proposals. We, we fund globally uh, at any time. So we have uh, oh studies going on right now all over the, the world. So we call for proposals. We evaluate them. They get ranked. We have uh, expert panel of of veterinarians and for the first time we now have a feel like a real feline focus we split our what used to be our small animal panels we have just a feline panel now and that grant process has been going on you know again since 1948 1950 but we've also over the years had occasionally uh, either a donor or we had extra funding which we put into maybe a special call for you know a very targeted type of proposal in the late i think 2008 2009 we had what we called our happy um happy cat campaign and that was really focused on asking people to send projects that were focused more on feline health and actually shelter medicine and that was a you know very targeted uh, group of, of studies, and we can chat about that because it was really interesting. We did uh, several years ago a again we had a donor who was really passionate about FIP, and she gave us some money which we were able to expand on, and so we had a specific call looking just at feline infectious peritonitis, and that was really successful. I think sometimes when you target funding like that. Um, that you know something comes out of that and then most recently last year we have a mark 
Morris Jr. Award, which is a stipend given to a researcher for several years. So basically they have a, a nice pot of money of funding to focus in on a particular very precise sort of uh, problem. And um, Betty Morse is really involved in that. And Betty decided that for this second award, she wanted to do something for cat health. And we convened a round table of feline experts. And, and we pretty quickly coned down on feline behavior. As I think a lot of people know, that is the number one reason, right? Cats are relinquished to shelters and um, euthanized sometimes. It's a, a huge area and it's an area that we don't always know a ton about. Um, so we just awarded that prize to a researcher at Penn that's going to look at kind of um, the effects of inflammation, chronic inflammation, so chronic disease on feline behavior to see if we can come up with some ways to strategize to make cats, you know, just uh, live uh, as they reach older age, be more comfortable as well as what can we recommend to veterinarians. And some of that feline behavior focus really came out of a survey we did of general practitioners where we asked in um, you know feline medicine, what are areas of big concern and feline behavior was number one. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not surprised about the, the feline behavior popularity at all. Um, part of my background, one of the hats that I've worn um, at times uh, is I worked with the Wynn Feline Foundation for many years. I was a, a president of Wynn too for many years. Um, and of course, Wynn funds only feline studies. So I, I, it would, I think it might be interesting for our audience to hear a little bit about what's the process about how studies get funded, you know, like how I, I suspect um, Morris Animal Foundation has a process that's somewhat similar to WINS, um, but I, I think it would be useful for people to hear, like what kind of process do prospective studies um, go through? Because um, I know, of course, from my personal experience in, in, in doing this, that it's really quite rigorous vetting, if you will, before a study gets funded. So um, I think it'd be interesting to just delve a little bit in into that. What What is that uh, process? What does that process look like? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it is pretty rigorous. So we put out a call, as I mentioned, one time a year for feline proposals, and we get those submitted. And they typically run, I'm going to throw some numbers out here, about 170 proposals we might get. Um, they are then whittled down we, by our, uh, we have an advisory board of experts and we try to have people with different, so we always have an infectious disease person, right? And we always have a cancer person. We have a few internists with, um, you know, different subspecialties. So GI, we always have a lot of heart. We always try to have a cardiologist on there or somebody respiratory cardiology. Uh, and then a few uh, more general people. On, on the board. And so they start reviewing these 170 proposals, they divide them up and five people we get, they look at the abstracts and they score them. And the we whittled the number down from like 170, though I think the last cat one, we, we usually, we sometimes have less. So we whittle them down to about anywhere between 40 and 70, right? Where we're like, okay, these are really great proposals. We're gonna, 
take a closer look at these and we then look at the full proposals. So before we're looking at abstracts and the same group of people now look at them again, but each each proposal is assigned to people because now you're looking at the whole proposal and they look at it, they, you know, grade, give them a grade. And then we convene a meeting that takes a couple days to go through, right? Where people discuss and we go through each proposal at that point and people go pros and cons. Um, and then they assign a final grade and they, we rank them. And then basically we kind of go till we run out of money. <laughs> um, you know, we'll go, okay, what's our funding? And, and I think it's probably no surprise to people. We always, 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 always have more proposals that are recommended for funding than we have money. The other thing we do is if proposals come close, but maybe, you know, they could use a little tweaking. I think what many of our researchers really appreciate is they often get very constructive suggestions from the group like have you thought about maybe looking at this or this seems a little too ambitious how about if you cone it down a little bit or um so there's all different kinds of things that um we would look at and and give back and we'd say we'd love to see this proposal again next year answer these these things for us so we whittle what could be you know cats are we have less cats so I, i'm trying to think of the last couple of years probably we whittle a total of seven let's say 70 or 80 because we've had a few um a little bit less in the cat bin the last couple of years down to 10 that get funded and um again it's pretty competitive and those 10 the, the other thing that we do at Morse is we have different categories of grants. So we would have what would be an established investigator. That's a person who's gotten pretty big, you know, a decent size award before, right? Uh, as far as funding, we have pilot studies, which are really small. You don't have to have preliminary data. And those are exploratory, right? Like I have this idea, I need some money to check it out, right? And a lot of those pilot ones can then become, be resubmitted later as a full grant, right? If they are like, yeah, that idea really worked out and I'd like to explore this a little bit um, in a deeper way. The other pot we have are what are called first investigator awards. So let's say you're an up and coming researcher, you maybe have just gotten a job at, um, typically these are academic institutions and you need that first big grant to help with your career. Those awards, we would ask people to have um, some mentor support. So mentors have to say, yep, going to help this person. Uh, they're very, you know, they've got the equipment they say they do. And those can be really, really helpful for people to get that first big grant under their belt so they can get some research done and get some publications out there. And then they become established investigators. The last pot that we have is uh, fellowships. And these are people still in training. And typically there are DVMs, DVM PhDs that might fund part of their PhD work or their postdoc. And those also, those are really geared more as training grants. Uh, certainly, you know, a plan of study has to be submitted to us. So this is more work on both the mentors and the, the recipients, but they have to have a plan of study. They have to have mentorship support. 
The problem they're trying to solve is important, but there's also an emphasis placed on, is this training? Are we training the next generation of scientists here? So occasionally a fellowship um, might focus as much on the training aspect as the question they're trying to answer, if that makes sense for people. As um, uh, as an example, uh, we have some people who are learning new techniques, right? And so maybe their question, it's, it's a, you know, kind of a roll of a dice if it's going to work, but at the same time, they're going to learn about all different laboratory techniques that, again, hopefully will propel them to something like a first award. And we have many investigators that we have seen all the way through from maybe a, a, a fellowship to a first award to an established investigator award. We also have a very small amount of money um, for veterinary student scholars. So each university can submit one person that they think, you know, a stu vet student that is going to do a little research over the summer and we give them some money for a project is again, another springboard for people to learn about veterinary research because I think all of us know this, but the situation is somewhat dire for people going into research, right? Um, it's not always a lot of money uh, in it. It is competitive. It's a shrinking pool all the time, but that will be harmful as we move down the line if we have nobody kind of entering that pipeline. So I hope that answers your question. That was kind of long. It did. It did. It, you know, it's very exciting because, you know, I, I was a researcher myself in the good old days. Uh, I've received a, 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 an MAF grant and I was very, very proud of doing so. But um, I, I also think it is so difficult for, for, for veneer researchers sometimes to tap into research money. And Mark Morris has done such an amazing job in supporting the profession and supporting research within the profession. So it's very, very much appreciated. Uh, so, uh, so thank you for that explanation. And you said it is global. So it doesn't matter where you live, as long as you submit a great proposal, uh, you might be able to uh, to to get that. Yes, um, we've had a lot of different people. We have right now. We have a grant in Australia because we did. Um, it actually was related to the wildfires, but we also have other grants there. We have one in Hong Kong. We have a couple in the uh, UK. We've funded though lots and lots of different places. As you know, we fund a lot in Europe in general. We've done South Africa, um, other in other countries in Africa as well, South America, and all over uh, all over the world. So yeah, it doesn't matter. Just uh, submit your proposal. And that's great. And it's also great to hear that that cat proposals are less common so you have a bigger chance so anybody that has a good proposal definitely submit those proposals uh, don't think that that you will never make a chance because that's not the case and and so if people are interested in submitting proposals where should they go um they should go to our website so it's more animal foundation one word.org and there's actually a grants tab and in there it'll walk you through what i just said and it has more detailed descriptions of each of the types of awards like do you qualify for this or that and it also has contact information to our wonderful grants administrators who also can answer questions for you very specifically and i would absolutely encourage people we have seen kind of a roller coaster ride up and down of cat proposals i think people 
really have it in their mind for some reason they're going to be competing in the dog pool <laughs> and yeah. that i mean seriously right and they also say well doesn't morse do dogs it's like no we do all this stuff and we have a whole cat pool of money that we're happy to use and we want to get out there so we are really really trying to encourage people to apply to that cat pool because it is smaller than the dog pool and again um there's money there yeah, and that's and it's great that you're on the podcast because a lot of cat lovers are listening. So these are words that we love to hear because we always feel there's not enough research in cats, and you know how you don't have an excuse now because there is money available. I just want to go back to one one question because you were talking about your sponsors and how important those are, and I remember that the grant that I received from Mark Morris was by a personal sponsor. So, so that is a person that. Uh, probably wants to sponsor research because either their animal had some disease that they want to look into, et cetera. So, so obviously the base of Mark Morris is, is by the Morris family. Um, so how are you looking for sponsors and how important are those individual sponsors to you? Yeah, that's a great question, Yoli. We, um, we have what's called a donor-inspired study program. And that is exactly what you mentioned. And I remember that study because it was a person who lost their dog to insulinoma. And they had money and they said, look, we don't want to give just to the general pool. And it's usually, you know, let's be frank, a higher level donor, right? That has, um, you know, some money to contribute and they have a passion in one area. And what our person who did uh, FIP several years ago, Anne Hardy had been a long time um, donor and Anne was getting up there in years and she had uh, fostered a lot of cats, dealt with FIP and that was her passion. And she gave a pot of money towards the end of her life and said, this is for FIP. I'm earmarking it, go find some studies. And then we actually were able to find other people who wanted to kind of jump in that pool and make it a little bit bigger uh, pile of money. And we were able to fund, oh, six studies, probably at an average of a hundred grand a piece. So that was really nice, but all focused on FIP. So we have done that for donors. We have um, a couple, we have breed clubs who have said, look, this is a problem within our breed and we don't wanna go into the general pool of cat. We, we, we have this really specific uh, desire to look at this genetic problem in our breed. We see that way more in dogs um, than in cats, but we're totally open, right, to, to that cat um, pool. And then, um, and then there's of course our general pool, which is really all the donors, like my mom and you know my neighbor and everybody. A lot of people out there who just donate to the foundation, and they may say, "Hey, put this in the cat pile," or um, "Here's just a donation to the foundation in general." But the pile of money we have, the minimum, right? We have for cats every year remains stable. So it doesn't matter how much people earmark or send to us. The cat pool is always the same. It's just that sometimes it gets bigger, right? If we have a specific call for proposals in one area. And if there are donors out there interested and you have a real specific desire to see funding in a certain way, um, we definitely have that available to people. And I just mentioned a couple. And then 
uh, as I mentioned earlier, the Happy Healthy Cat campaign, that was a totally different thing that we just raised money very specifically from a lot of donors at large, right? Got a pool of money together and then focused really on, you know, general health care and shelter medicine. So it it's uh, it 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 really allows for people with all kinds of interests, I think, to get involved. Like that's what I think of when when I hear what you're describing, right? So whether you just want to help advance the the health of cats, or you've got a specific disease or condition in mind, you know, there's a there's a way to make a difference. There's a way for um, you know, even your average uh, pet owners to make a, a difference. Um, and and I, I don't think that gets talked about enough. You know, it can be really powerful feeling as a pet owner to know that you've helped advance the cause um, uh, as it as it were. So I think we have time for one last question. And the, the other thing that I know, again, because I've been on the funding side, is that it takes a lot of volunteers and it takes a lot of expert volunteers. So by and large, the people who help look at studies and review them, uh, probably a lot or most of them are volunteering their time uh, to do that. And I'm always so impressed by how generous our veterinary colleagues are in uh, in, in spending their, their precious time, because none of us have enough time um, to do that. So um, I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about that, that value, because again, I think a lot of veterinarians don't realize that they, even if they're not going to do research, there's other ways to help the cause and, and become involved with organizations like Morris. Right. Um, we run, right, all of our small animal boards are um, volunteers, and we have uh, a cat board, as I mentioned, and we have a animal welfare board. So we have a separate board that looks at every study that's advanced for funding and all they're looking at is and the animal welfare piece. So the other idea, I think, behind Morris is to try to have as much independence, right? Like, uh, you know, at Morris, everybody has their idea of what maybe we should fund, right? But we get in outside experts to make sure we're, we're not being biased and we're trying to look at it in the you know most objective way possible. What is the best research project out there? And then, but in addition, we also have a whole group of animal welfare experts from all arms of veterinary medicine, right? We have some shelter experts, we have cat, dog, uh, even wildlife and horses, right? And those experts also scrutinize all the proposals to make sure that they are just, you know, pristine when it comes to animal use and care right? And looking at that, and those all run on volunteers. And they are typically, we look at people, most of them are, are boarded in some area. And, um, but we're always looking for, for people who are interested in volunteering, because as you can imagine, it's a lot of time. I think, Susan, you can probably appreciate how much time it takes to whittle down through through this and then get on a bunch of Zoom meetings now, but we used to meet in person, right? Where you're there for a day or two or three, right? Going through these proposals, discussing them, and uh, they do it They do it for free. They get a backpack, but that's about, <laughs> and the backpacks are nice, are more <laughs> so nice. But you know what, when you think about it, we're joking, but it's really a small, small thing, right? For this a massive amount of time people volunteer. 
Yeah, and it's so much appreciated. As a matter of fact, we're at time. Time flies when we're having fun. So what this this was great, and I'm very excited to hear uh, our second episode, which uh, will air in a week, where we're going to talk about some success stories, Kelly. So uh, okay. uh, some feline success stories, and I would also love to talk. You also have some lifetime. Uh, uh, research. So I know the uh, it, it's not a cat lifetime thing, but I know that with, you do something with golden retrievers that that is spending quite a lot of time, and uh, and and obviously there is a lot of money involved with that too. So uh, those are the studies we have not talked about yet. So I'm very excited to have you back next week to talk about those kind of studies. And I'm and and I'm wondering with that and that's the cliffhanger for this week is if there is also a feline life study and if not if that will ever be set up so uh, very exciting uh, things to talk about uh, uh, thank you so much uh, Kelly for being on and Dr. Susan do you, would you like to do the others <laughs> yeah so, someday we've got to switch this around you know and 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 you get to do the honors Yola someday <laughs> <laughs> I'm always the cleanup person I think <laughs> yes yes it's also because I am the timekeeper you know we it's have to kind of uh, you know it's true. Yes. Yeah. yeah. We, we, this podcast would be like three hours long if um, if the timekeeping was left up to me. So so <laughs> good point, Yola. Good point. Um, okay. So that's my cue to remind people that we are the Per Podcast and you can find all of our episodes and our great guest experts and their topics on our website, which is perpodcast.net. And we are very social. Uh, so you can find us on uh, most of the social media platforms at per podcast. Uh, and you can find us in pretty much any uh, app or place that you like to listen to podcasts, whether it's something like Spotify or the Apple podcast app, you'll, uh, you'll be able to find us there. So it would make us happy if you enjoy our podcast, if you could leave us a good review, because not only does it put a smile on our our face, but it helps other people find us. And that's a good thing, too. So that's the wrap up for this week. And we'll have to stay tuned for part two. Yes, wonderfully said, I have to say. So thank <laughs> you, Dr. Susan. And thank you, Dr. Kelly, for being on with us. And we'll see you next week. Thanks. Dr. Susan Little is a feline medicine specialist with two cat-only hospitals in Ottawa, Canada. She is best known as an international speaker and as the author and editor of two textbooks, The Cat, Clinical Medicine and Management, and August, Consultations in Feline Internal Medicine. Along with three cats, she also admits to owning two dogs. And you can follow her on social media with the handle at CatPetSusan. Dr. Yola Kirpenstein is a diplomate of the American and European College of Veterinary Surgeons and a big cat fan. His specialties range from surgical oncology and reconstruction to minimally invasive surgery. He is the author of two textbooks on basic and reconstructive surgery. Did you know he was allergic to cats? Yola works currently at Hills Pet Nutrition. You can follow him on social media with the handle at GVETSX. This episode is made possible by the generous sponsorship of the Take the Pledge Against Struvites in Pets Facebook page. Did you know there are three easy steps to treat bladder stones in cats with lower urinary tract signs? Step one is to take a radiograph, and if there is a stone present in the bladder, step two is to use the Minnesota Urolith app 
for iPhone and Android to determine the most likely type of stone. Step three is to treat the cat for at least two to three weeks with an appropriate diet and see if the stone gets smaller. If so, keep feeding that diet until the stone is completely gone on follow-up radiographs. If not, check compliance with the owner and look for alternative treatment options. Join veterinarians worldwide to take the pledge not to remove screw bite stones by surgery anymore. The opinions of this podcast are those by Dr. Susan Little and Dr. Yola Kirpenstein. Veterinary medicine is a complex profession, and often there are multiple diagnostic and therapeutic options for different disease processes. If you're a pet owner with questions, please go to your local veterinarian. If you're a veterinary professional, ask your questions on our Instagram page at per podcast.